Hello, John from the Lib Dem Podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Prater Reigns website at praterains.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem Podcast. My name is John Potter and today I'm really excited because it's a topic that is really interesting to not just a lot of Lib Dems but a lot of people generally and it's about politics and the law and how those waters are potentially getting muddied. Uh, And so with us we have two fantastic Lib Dems but are also two fantastic barristers as well. Well actually I say they're fantastic barristers, luckily I haven't had use of them yet. Uh, So returning for his third appearance on the podcast, please welcome uh, former MEP and barrister uh, Anthony Hook. Welcome back Anthony. Hi John. And for the first time on the podcast, we are delighted to have uh, the parliamentary candidate for Harrogate and Nairsburg, but also a barrister, is uh, Judith Rogerson. Hi, Judith. Hello. So, I mean, we'll kick this off by starting that lawyers and the judiciary and judges have been called enemies of the people, do-gooders, lefties. In your opinion, has the legal profession in recent circumstances ever had this much public and political kind of attention and scrutiny put onto it. Uh, shall I start with you, Anthony? What, 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 how do you feel the state of play is at the moment? It's an interesting question, John. I mean, I think it's not completely new. The Blair government had certainly people like David Blunkett and um, John Reid who were very rude about lawyers and said sort of quite similar things to the kind of things we hear from Pretty Patel. But it, it feels like it's probably more intense in the last few years, both from her, but also from the tabloid press, you know, and the uh, mail front page with uh, the pictures of the three judges who decided the Miller case were enemies of the people. That was unprecedented. You know, people could produce front pages from German newspapers, pro-Nazi newspapers in the thirties with exactly the same headline and layout. So it's just extraordinary. I mean, I think though, even the male's owners realised it was starting to go too far and Paul Dacre got, got shown the door not that long ago as a result of it. And what was the reaction, Judith, within the legal profession to that? Did they just think, oh, that's just the, the press being the press? Or how, how did, what has been the response to this kind of level of intensity, as Anthony put it? Well, I, I can really remember the day that Enemies of the People headline came out. I remember I was in I was in chambers and it, it was different. It did feel like a, a sort of a real step change in the way that the press was attacking uh, the judiciary. And I remember sort of saying to people, it's only a matter of time before they move away from the judges and start attacking the lawyers. Um, and that very much is what's happening now. Um, as you say, lefty lawyers, campaigning lawyers, activist lawyers, I think those of us in the profession know that that just isn't really what goes on. And of course, you'll always find exceptions to the rule. But it's 
it's a deliberate attempt, I think, to misrepresent what we do and how we work and really what our role is. Um, and I think there's a really big distinction between what politicians do and what lawyers do. And Anthony and I, we, you know, we both, we bear the, wear both of those hats. And I would say, yes, in my spare time, I'm a campaigner. You know, I stood for Parliament as a Liberal Democrat and then I campaigned in Harrogate and Nairsborough for the Liberal Democrats. But I don't let that cross over into my work. I always keep the two things separate. Um, and it's a question a lot of people ask me is why would you choose to, to leave a career in the law and, and go and work in politics? And I think it's the really fundamental difference is that when you're a politician, you know, you're campaigning and arguing for the things that you personally care about. It's the things that, you, that are important to you. As a lawyer, that is not your job. Your job is not to go out and argue your personal views on an issue. You're there to represent your client within the law. And you can only argue a case within the law. If you go to court and start arguing your own personal views, you're not going to get very far. Um, mm -hmm. Your case is not going to succeed. Um, and I think that's that's the real issue, that now it does feel like lawyers are being demonised and, and misrepresented in a large way of what we actually do day to day. And do, Anthony, do you want to uh, say anything on that? About Do you think that lawyers are being misrepresented or do you think, um, the, I mean, the, the idea of campaigning lawyers... Is that a good or bad thing? Is it bringing, I mean, we talk, I mean, there's been huge events in so many events that have happened last year, going right back to the proroguing of Parliament, where it really, again, with the Supreme Court getting involved in the UK. What, what's your response to that? Is, that? is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How is that? What's your take on it? Well, I mean, in specific relation to the, the, the case about that's generated the enemies of the people headline, I mean, that was... Um, Supreme Court decision deciding whether what the government was doing was legal. And that's a really important point. And actually, as a MEP or MEP candidate, and obviously I've done lots of public meetings about Europe, and for some reason, reasons are fairly obvious, in the course of the evening, questions about rule of law and human rights tend to come up because they, people link them to Europe. And when I sort of, if I make any comments about judicial review or the fundamental point that the government can be can be held to have broken the law, some people are very surprised at that. You know, it just doesn't compute in their minds, partly because they don't see a distinction between parliament and the government. And constitutionally, they're completely different. Parliament is the body that collectively makes the law and the government have to obey the law, just like you and me. The only thing is that parliament has also given the government powers to do lots of things but they still got an obligation not to break the law um i mean it's, the idea that lawyers are all kind of lefty or something is completely inaccurate and obviously there are some are you know there's a very vibrant society of socialist lawyers and so on but equally there's lots of conservatives as well and so i do most of my work in the crown court outside of london and I would say that of my friends and colleagues, there's the whole spectrum there. Actually, I don't generally ask people how they're going to vote. Sometimes they tell me, though. Um, and there are lots of there are lots of liberals there, but there are also lots of people who vote Labour and lots of people who vote Conservative. And actually, particularly outside of London, people who have what, if I say Conservative pastimes and interests, you, you can imagine what, what I mean by that. Um, so actually, the law is drawn from a much broader cross-section. If anything, there's a real problem in terms of access into the profession, that it's very expensive to qualify as a lawyer and increase, we're still drawn disproportionately from people who've been to public school and um, wealthy backgrounds and so on, who can afford that as opposed from the, the bigger cross-section of society. I can't remember the numbers of 
judges or QCs who are from a public school background, but it's much, much larger for, than the 7% of the population as a whole. And so, what well, after the question from my point, obviously I am, I'm no lawyer, I've got no legal training whatsoever, but is it a bad thing, this level of attention that, that lawyers get? Is it, I mean, obviously you want it to be good attention and, and, and not in sort of a frictional sort of way from the government or just move away slightly from the argument. I mean, I don't really want to use an American example, but, say, you know, more people in Britain could name probably an American Supreme Court judge than a British Supreme Court judge. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, American politics is quite interesting. I mean, law the legal profession and politics are much more intertwined in America, particularly actually on, on our side, you know, the, the democratic party is often considered to be the party of lawyers. And it certainly was the case a few years ago, may well still be the case now that the biggest source of individual donations as opposed to corporate donations to the Democrats was from practicing lawyers. And if you think about it, Obama, Biden, Kamala Harris were lawyers, both the Clintons were, Two of the Kennedy brothers were, I think FDR was a lawyer. Um, and obviously there are some Republican lawyers, but not the same way. And actually looking back to our side of the Atlantic, I think that something the party, the Liberal Democrats have missed over the years actually is building up a base of support among lawyers. I mean, about five years ago, Jeff Payne and I, who both work in the criminal bar and are Lib Dem activists, we, were try we tried to write for ourselves a list of people who we knew were practicing law, particularly in the legal aid, field um, who are liberal democrat activists and it wasn't a long list that we could come up with and there were more but who left during the coalition years and, and haven't come back and i think it's a real untapped seam of support for the party i think going back to your question john about whether it's a good thing or not that people probably know more about american lawyers than us I don't know anyone, I can't think of any of my colleagues who went into it because they wanted to become a known name. Um, mm. And I think that the thought that uh, of being filmed in court, most of us find quite horrifying. You know, we don't do this because we want to be on television and be celebrities. Um, but looking at it in a slightly different way, um, like, like Anthony said, that law and politics in America seems a lot more intertwined. Um, just watching what's happened there with the Supreme Court and that sort of scramble to get um, a nominee through the process so that they could have another Republican supporting um, judge in the court. It's completely alien to us because our judges aren't elected or nominated by politicians. And that's a really important point. And I think that's one of the slightly concerning things that's going on is that when judges, when politicians start criticizing individual judges or individual decisions that have been made, because like Anthony said, the government is has to be held to account and is, is liable under law is just as much as anyone else is. And I think a lot of this has possibly come back because there have been some decisions that the government don't like. And there's a backlash now against judicial review. And it's part, I think, of building up this public perception about the lawyers are working against us. Um, this judicial review is a bad thing. It's not. It's there to protect people, to stop the government exceeding their powers. Um, and a similar thing, and it came up in the European debate, Anthony's mentioned like the European Court and, and things like that. There was a lot of misconception out there about the difference between the European Court of Human Rights, the European Court of Justice, the Human Rights Act. They're all terms that are sort of thrown around and people get very agitated and excited about them. But we're not necessarily always getting the full picture and the correct story in the press as to what actually is going on. Yeah, so I do you think... No, go on, go on. Anthony. And quite often, I think the press 
kind of are guilty of winding people up and inviting people to add two and two and make five. For instance, I can remember during the referendum doing a debate down at Sandwich and there was a, a chap in the audience um, who was from a forces background and was livid. Uh, he'd read in the, the Express or the Mail that day that a man had brought a case in the Strasbourg court, the Human Rights Court, uh, saying that he'd been brutalised by British soldiers. And he had simply made the inference that because that case had been brought, that the claimant would succeed and mm -hmm. soldiers would be punished and this man would receive compensation. But of course, that is something that is light years apart. And I, I made the point to him that pe anyone can bring a case and people bring crappy cases every day of the week and every court in the world is, is you can especially see that in america right now <laughs> yeah, well, quite, but so i said to him well, wait and see whether your newspaper ever tells you what the outcome of of the case is but then it comes back to issues we have in politics as well it's just people's general lack of understanding i mean equally you know, we can have a conversation about people who don't understand the electoral system the commons the lords their local council and we don't have sufficient civic education in our schools to cover all of that. And so do you think, I mean, as I said, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, um, but the American idea of having judges more prominent and being elected, I mean, is that something that Britain should ever think about? Or is it, is it, or is that just, is just going to be a disastrous turn of front because you don't want judges thinking about campaigning like, or, 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 or whatever. You want them actually thinking about, okay, what is the most reasonable... Uh, assessment of this law in whatever case they're working on. Absolutely. I find the, the idea of electing judges pretty horrifying. It's something that's so completely alien to our legal system that the, the independence of the judiciary is absolutely sacrosanct. Is, and, and my experience, you know, so we'll all have difficult experience in front of judges, but they're people of integrity by and large um, who are acting you know, within the law. Their job is to look at the law and interpret it. It's not there to represent you know, one view or another, they come to a case impartially and look at the issues in front of them. Um, and, you know, they're not going to worry about being re-elected in five years time or something if they're not deciding the cases the way that people want them to be. And I think that that, that I, I just find it completely astonishing that it could happen. But obviously in America, that's their system. And, and we, we can see the sort of the impact that that has. Because I worry about that, and I, I assume just before I let Anthony come in, is that we all know to win elections you need money. I need to fundraise to do that money. So if a judge is having to fundraise to win a contest, that brings up all sorts of grey areas, doesn't it, Anthony? But you already see the damage in, in some respects, the election of police and crime commissioners, actually. And I don't think anyone, say, academically or, or anything like that, or they're in the media, has done like a rigorous study of how the election of, of crime commissioners has actually affected criminal justice priorities. But anecdotally, I've heard it. I mean, I uh, worked as a fraud lawyer for the CPS for a few years, quite some time ago, but I've still got a lot of friends who are cops in, in fraud units. And their morale is, is quite low because in a number of police forces in England, fraud has really been downgraded. Staff aren't being replaced, institutional knowledge is being lost. There's a message throughout the force fraud is not a priority for us unless it's a really easy case they won't do anything complicated um i won't do anything cross-border and stuff like that and that's because police and crime commissioners are getting elected on the promise that x or y will be their priority and it it's not frauds so it's something else so even and i think the point you make john about the corrupting influence of having to raise money is an issue 
but actually the, the fundamental populism of taking something important like what's a police force's strategic priorities and putting that in the hands of someone who has to court popularity brings a lot of dangers with it. And it's, I mean, I'm trying to get the balance right because in one sense, I completely agree with not enough is known about what happens in the judiciary. You're saying there's a general, people just don't know. All they hear about is either a case that comes and says, well, that sentence is ridiculous. They don't know why that sentence is ridiculous. Or huge cases like we had with the proguing of, uh, of Parliament or, say, the Gina Miller, Gina Miller sort of case and things like that. So how, how do we square that circle? How do we get people more educated in what goes on without raising the publicity in a sort of negative sense? I think it's really difficult because whenever you have those big cases that are getting lots of headlines, I'm always a bit reluctant to sort of give a view on them because unless you know the full story and you've sat through and heard everything, you can't really know why people have reached the decision that they did they, they will have done um and i think that is a problem that it's very easy to pick up snippets and be outraged mm. uh, be appalled that the sentence was too light or have they possibly found this um but, but that that's what journalists that's what journalists will do won't they so a journalist well, wants no, outrage because no, no. it sells papers but yeah, actually no, yeah. it's not the journalist's fault because i i don't do crime i do civil cases but um some of the cases that i do have journalists there but they can't be expected to sit there for five days so you know it's not their fault that they have to dip in and out um but but that is a problem and i think that's why you've got to, to some extent the judges are there to do that job that they do sit there in, in the cases i do where most of them don't have a jury the judge will sit there and listen carefully to the evidence and give a reasoned judgment to why they've done what they've done but the snippets of, of information that might make it into the press don't really reflect that mm. um, and it, it is a problem John, I'd say actually, just being controversial here, that as Lib Dems as a party, our hands are not completely clean on this. You know, mm -hmm. I've sometimes over the years seen comments by Lib Dem MPs or other problems with Lib Dems that really made me very uncomfortable. I, I can remember during the uh, cases that came after the MPs' expenses scandal in the late 2000s, there was one MP who was convicted and then she got... Um, I think she got a hospital order. She certainly got a non-custodial sentence on the on mental health grounds. And I saw a Lib Dem PPC at the time say something to the effect of, uh, this is disgraceful. I suppose all she needed was some retail therapy. And I contacted that person and said, you are completely out of line because mm -hmm. the judge would uh, the judge made a finding actually i think that she was unfit to plead and that means a person is so mentally unwell at that point they couldn't have a fair trial and the judge has to have two psychiatric reports to do that it's not done on a whim um and i said to this person you effectively have said that the judge was wrong mm -hmm. to draw that conclusion have you read the psychiatric reports were you there in court and yet this person credit to them kind of ate humble pie and realized their mistake and didn't do it again but equally another one is i can remember um when it may have been an, an mp's expenses case again as well certainly when an mp was on trial arguing that their actions were covered by parliamentary privilege and i mm. saw a lib dem colleague say it's disgraceful that they're arguing that their actions are covered by parliamentary privilege. Well, actually not. It's not disgraceful that they're arguing it, actually. If their lawyers think that it's a reasonably arguable point, then they're entitled to raise it with the judge 
to say, look, I've got this defence. This is what the law is. Just as as pro-Europeans, we all cheered when the Supreme Court said to, in the Miller case, the law is part, you know, the government can't parade parliament for as long as they want. Mm. Equally, they're entitled to say to the judge, as a matter of law, our client's actions are covered by parliamentary privilege, albeit the judge heard argument from both sides and said, no, it's not. Parliamentary privilege is no defence in this case. And the, the MP was convicted. And so I think it would be appropriate for, for a Lib Dem or any other party spokesman to say these actions are terrible and immoral and they definitely shouldn't be covered by parliamentary privilege. But to, mm. to say it's disgraceful to even raise it as an argument in your defence is, is very wrong in my view. Yeah. And I wonder, is I mean, we'll get we'll get onto the, the the politics of this current government and what their what their kind of motives are. But from your point of view, and obviously I'm not looking for specifics here. What, where does the judiciary need to go? Is it is it where it needs to be? Do you think that broadly they're, they're getting things right in terms of how how they interpret? Obviously, judiciary is not there to make laws; they are there to enact them and to and to to use them to. Uh, for society um so but is are there areas you think well you know what would be really good for the legal session if this happened uh i mean i don't know they might be perfect i don't know judith is is the legal profession all perfect i don't think any profession is all perfect is it um and obviously it varies from person to person but certainly in the kind of law i do i mean i specialize in healthcare law so the sorts of cases i'm doing it's often a mixture of law and medicine um on the whole i think the judges tend to get it right and if they don't get it right you've got to reach to appeal um mm. and if they get the law wrong then you can you can challenge that um what i as i said before what i don't want to see is is judges being elected or being appointed on the basis of how they've decided cases or what their views are um judges are appointed but now by an independent panel that you know they look at their professional background it's but it's not it's not whether or not they've been deciding the right kinds of cases in the right way and it should never be that um and i take it just for and this is going to sound like i because i don't know this like i'm not in the profession so i take it there are if judges are seen to be getting things wrong or lawyers are not practicing as they should i take it there is very stringent kind of rules and and regulations on how the on how people are monitored is that right not, I mean, it varies, I think, in extent, John. I think there is um, a problem, but it's not necessarily a problem that's possible to fix because judges, it's, it's generally an appointment for life. You know, you can get promoted to a different tier, but it's generally considered an appointment for life. And you're basically unsackable. I mean, as mm. a matter of law, the only way to sack a, a judge can be called to the bar of the House of Commons, but that hasn't happened in hundreds of years, I don't mm. think. Having said that, there have been instances where a judge has done something outrageous and been told by the Lord Chief Justice or somebody, you need to resign. Um, mm -hmm. And there have been high profile cases where, for instance, a judge who made an outrageous comment about a rape victim resigned mm -hmm. the next day. But those are quite rare, actually, and they have to be very, very you know, shockingly serious. And there is a problem. I, most of the judges I've come across are very good. But I can think of a Crown Court judge who's now retired, who was often getting things wrong to a point where it was like a joke between the barristers and even the other judges that he really didn't know what he was doing. And there's not much of a mechanism, actually, to correct that. But I don't Would you that. like there to be a mechanism? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, there, there, you know, there, there needs to be a mechanism. And there probably is training and support for judges who want it, who might say, you know, I think I need to 
brush up and improve my knowledge. I'm, I'm sh- I don't know, but I'm sure they've got plenty of support available, but, but not necessarily everyone wants it. And I think there is a danger um, that we sometimes put judges on a pedestal and assume they're sort of super humans, particularly in a moral sense. And, and judges are human beings too. And actually you get a lot of very good ones, but you can get the odd one who's a bit lazy and you get some that are, are very um, reasonable and courteous, but you get the odd one who's an absolute bully actually. And, mm-hmm. and every barrister I know, I think could name you a judge who's a real bully. And there's not, unless they do something extremely serious, there's not much of a mechanism to do very much about it. You know, if they're really determined to, to carry on being rude and obnoxious every day to people. The word gets around about judges who are like that and everyone will know. Mm. <laughs> and like Anthony said, everyone, everyone will be able to think of someone who's, who's been particularly rude or bullying. Um, but in terms of, and I think Anthony's absolutely right, in terms of the judges, it's quite difficult to get rid of a bad judge. Um, but as lawyers, you're, you're very quite strictly regulated. We've got professional rules. Um, we're all subject to codes of conduct. Um, as barristers, we're subject to the Bar Standards Board to regulate what we do. So if we were, were behaving in a way that was inappropriate, um, that was stepping outside the code of conduct, then we would get into trouble. And there are disciplinary tribunals that happen for barristers and for solicitors. Um, and, you know, I, earlier on, I, a lot of the work I do is sort of professional discipline work as well. And earlier in my career, I did, um, I was involved in the hearings for barristers. So I still were a lot of hearings where barristers were in trouble for all sorts of things. So it's not a free for all where you can rock up to court, say what you want, behave how you like. Um, mm. I think part of the problem is it's very much not like it appears on television. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. have this view of what it's like to be a barrister. Um, Yes, I've watched Suits. I know what you people do. <laughs> I don't remember what the name of the programme with Hugh Laurie, um, where he was playing a politician a couple of weeks ago. Oh, um, Roadkill. That was it. Um, and there, yeah. there were barristers in there, and instantly I was sitting there sort of tearing my hair out at all the inaccuracies and the way they were talking to each other. They're just so rude to each other, but certainly in my experience, that's not how people behave. But um, I think that, you know, obviously it would, if it, it would make a very dull television drama if it was what actually the way life is um but the reality is if you behave that way um certainly as a barrister sooner or later you'll get found out and i want to kind of bring us back onto politics now i mean because we are in a fairly unprecedented time if you guys want to talk about america you absolutely can because that just seems to be a whole other kettle of crazy i don't i don't know who would hire rudy giuliani but i don't think he'll get much more work after this but let's bring it back home and we're talking about obviously Anthony you were an MEP and we're talking about Brexit that's coming up and I think there was a general aghast at the kind of we intend to break international law in a limited and specific way now how what what are the consequences of that what does that say from a from a politics and legal point of view about where our country is heading at the moment but it's all about trust, isn't it? International relations built on on trust. I mean, international law is sometimes enforceable. There are some inter- international courts, but often it's not directly enforceable. But it's um, about having a framework of rules that determine how other t- countries are going to treat you. And in a way, the 20th century was a sort of process. From We started the 20th century with almost no international institutions and then over the course of that century particularly after 1945 
WHO, the United Nations, the International Labour Organization, NATO, the EU, and so on. And all of those organizations are based on obligations of one kind or another. And if you say, well, I'm going to break international law, albeit in a limited specific way, how do all your friends and neighbors know when else are you going to break it, actually? And can we rely on you? Um, in whether it's a military context, a commercial context, it, it's a real problem. And I mean, people often say, oh, there's too many lawyers in politics. Actually, there's very few nowadays. I think in the current cabinet, Suella Braverman, the AG and um, the Lord Chancellor Buckland, are, mm-hmm. who kind of have to be lawyers by, by definition, um, they're the only lawyers in there, actually. And I think people like Johnson, whose whole career has been journalism, but a particularly fast and loose Mm. Uh, style of journalism that's a very generous way to say you got fired for lying twice (laughs) and the idea of of having principles and your word being your bond doesn't come naturally to him i think but also you lose the moral authority Mm -hmm. whereas if we want to uphold ourselves as a country that's always obeyed the rule of law and been a sort of a model of human rights um to then turn you back on a treaty that you signed less less than a year ago mm. is just outrageous. And then how when you know how do we then stand up to countries like I don't know North Korea or China when they start breaching international law or breaking human rights? How are we then going to be able with authority to say to them you can't do that because you know it's not one rule for them and a different rule for us. You can't break you can't break the law in a limited and specific way. You're breaking the law, you know. Um, and you know there were loads of jokes after that. People saying, "Well, I'll go along to court tomorrow and just say to the judge, well, we haven't done it, but it was a limited and specific way.'" <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. And I, I'm re- I'm really I'm really interested. Sorry about obviously because uh, is it Jeffrey Cox was the former a um, attorney general. Yes. So I think he refused to vote on it. I think so. As a lot, if you were put in that position, both of you are both lawyers and politicians. What, how would you deal with it? I mean, it, like I say, uh, it must just destroy, like you said, the moral uh, kind of uh, you, your moral reckoning on how you can do your job. Does it? Do, well, will it actually have a, a consequence on their careers? Does that affect it if you if you are voted to break the law? I don't know if it would have a consequence on their career if they went back. I mean, I suspect there were probably several people there in Parliament struggling because. You know, it's a precarious position to be in, isn't it, an MP? And the one great thing about our job is that, you know, you can go back to it if we were in Parliament for five or ten years. But whether or not it would affect their careers in the future, I, I, I'm I, sure that as lawyers they would have really struggled with that. And I think that's part of the problem is people just voting along party lines and doing as they're told. I think certainly I would have struggled immensely to, to do that um, if I'd been asked to vote for something like that. And I would guess that one of the reasons we're Liberal Democrats is that we can't imagine being in that position. You know, like if in mm-hmm. some happy but unlikely at the moment scenario where there was a Lib Dem majority government, Ed Davies, the Prime Minister, and Judith and I are both Lib Dem MPs, um, Ed Davies isn't going to ask us exactly. to break the law. Yeah. But if it did, the answer would be no. Yeah. yeah. And does this then raise the possibility if... We- if you think of the Boris government and a particular swing, this sort of kind of, you, you call it fast and loose kind of what Boris is, but he's also a populist. And we've seen populists around the world, and, and Johnson's no different, just trying to find little grey areas within the law or trying to undermine it in certain ways. So is this the point where actually Britain does need some sort of formal constitution to, de- to defend against this sort of thing? How, what are your impressions? Like? How can we kind of, other than obviously via the ballot box, 
what kind of defence does the country have against this sort of kind of undermining of the rule of law? Well, you have to, that's why you have judicial review. That's why you've got the Human Rights Act. They're all there to protect people from the government straying outside um, outside their powers. The problem is that a government, well, through Parliament, if they've got the majority, they can change the law, mm-hmm. and that's where it starts getting worrying. Um, and I think sometimes there's a sort of an exceptionalism that you know it's it's okay for us to do this. And, you know, it, it, mm. there's a justification for for us to break the law because you know we're standing up for for Britain or what have you. But that's where it becomes worrying, and it's it might be a little bit of a cliche to say it's a slippery slope, but I think it is. Um, and I think that's why it's really important that that lawyers have stood up, and you know, the people at the bar council has been very vocal about this, about speaking up about about why you shouldn't be breaking the law, why you shouldn't be attacking lawyers unjustifiably. Um, And I think that really is the point where it comes, certainly from my perspective, you know, there have been times and it's really how I ended up in politics where you think I've got to do something. Mm. Um, I've got to speak up against these things. One thing, though, looking at the bigger picture and sort of the longer span of time is that we've got to be careful against thinking that judges and the rule of law will always be there to protect us if, if society as a whole and the tectonic plates of what people think and the culture really shifts. I mean, in my sort of time, which is quite short compared to others, I've been embarrassed for 17 years. I feel I've seen a change in, in what judges are like actually from 2003 to the present day. And I mean, I, my first time in the Royal Courts of Justice in front of a very famous judge called Stephen Sedley, uh, who is particularly well known as having been sort of long retired now, um, a defender of civil liberties and so on. In his youth, he'd been in the Communist Party. He wouldn't be, I don't think he'd be appointed as a judge today, even though he was a brilliant judge. But equally, um, to take another example, South Africa, the National Party that brought in apartheid came to power in about 1948, 1950. And for about 10 years, the South African judiciary held them back, said, no, these racist policies are unconstitutional, they breached the Bill of Rights. But by the 1960s, those judges had all died or retired, and a new generation of judges had been appointed by the national government or had come from the cultural forces that, that shaped the minds and the attitudes, just that had, in the 50s brought a national racist government in, then racists were coming through the legal profession and being appointed as judges. And then you had judges who were willing to wade through apartheid. So um, even if a judge saves us from illiberalism today, that isn't going to last forever. And so we, we mustn't think that it's a permanent protection. That, that, that's, again, really fascinating to me when you say about a culture shift, because I suppose, does that go both ways because my natural instinct is like oh my days what's going to happen next you know i rely on like you were saying these people are the ultimate arbiters i'm not going to sit in a court case and understand every word for five days i need these people uh and you guys to do that for me to assess these changes and and but is the culture heading would you say in a more i, I don't i don't i don't really know because obviously as a society, we're changing. I'd like to think that regardless of what's happened with Johnson, you know, things like whether it's gay rights, trans rights, same sex, all the rest of it, we are generally on a more progressive curve. Sometimes it's a bit slower. Sometimes we take a little dip. But actually, generally, the rule things, we are getting more progressive. Are you saying that, that actually that is, a, is at risk now more than ever? Or I, I, don't, I, want, I don't want to put words in your mouth. 
Mark, Mark Pack had a podcast actually. If you don't mind me mentioning another podcast, a while no, ago. he's good. He's all right. he's a friend of the pod. He's been on several times. I've never heard of him other than both around the podcast. But um, his guest was talking about the sort of analysis is that society as a whole is moving in a more progressive liberal direction, but different parts of society are moving at different speeds, and that's why it feels like we're a fractured, polarized society because the most liberal people are becoming more progressive this quickly but other people are still becoming more progressive, but at a much slower pace. So the gap between us is, is widening. Mm. And that's why we get the sense of there being culture wars and everything else. So, but, so, so how does that reflect then in, 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 in like, so just going back to your point about judge appointments. So it, would you say there is, are judges and the legal profession following that same curve or, or is there kind of a reaction going the other way? Well, I I expect, and again, I don't think anyone's done a sort of academic or serious uh, panorama type investigation on this, but judges are, are drawn from the, the rest of society. They go to the same schools, the same universities, um, they do the same things with their spare time, albeit they tend to be a more affluent, educated subgroup than the population as a whole. So whatever trends are going on would have would affect the judiciary as well. And I can imagine, if you take the example of gay rights, Back when homosexuality was illegal, I expect you could find summings up of judges or sentencing remarks or court of appeal judgments where judges then are saying deeply homophobic things and really mean it. But society mm. has changed and now accepts that people should be free to love whoever they want. And I, I'm sure the vast majority of people on the bench do as well. Or even if there are some homophobes on the bench, just as there are homophobes in every walk of life, maybe the police, the school teachers where it happens to be the homophobes generally known nowadays to shut up and keep it to themselves or else they'll be fired. Mm. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the judges are generally recruited from people who practiced as lawyers beforehand and it takes 20 or 30 years of practicing as a lawyer before they, they're going to become a judge so the people mm. who are filtering through the legal process um, it will be a while before they reach that position um, and you know Anthony said earlier on that disproportionately the judiciary come from sort of more privileged backgrounds but you know it will take time to see whether that changes and I know that there are there are lots of efforts sort of at the bottom end of the legal professor profession to try and help with social mobility to try and encourage people from you know who aren't from those sort of very privileged backgrounds to, to get into it and I know that there's some really good work out there being done to encourage those sorts of people um, to, to, to go into law um, but time will tell whether they filter through, whether they whether, whether they are successful and, and want to carry on and whether they want to become judges. And I think well, we can only do our best to encourage um, those people to do that. And I suppose from we're getting near the end of this podcast now, but from a, a Liberal Democrat point of view, what would you guys like to see the Liberal Democrats push in terms of uh, like policy regarding the law? I, I mean... I mean, you entirely up to you guys what you want to say, whether it's something structural, whether it's kind of greater protection for the independence of the judiciary. What would you like to see the Lib Dems really kind of push on on this in this field? I mean, standing up for human rights and civil liberties, that's sort of one of the hallmarks of the Lib Dems, isn't it? And I hope that we never we never lose that. Um, and, you know, I've been quite proud that some of the, the voices who've spoken up over the last few years have been Liberal Democrats. The problem is there just aren't enough of us there at the moment um, to get the coverage that we would like. Um, I think the other topic, and it is something that's on the radar for the Lib Dems, is, is things like legal aid. 
and we mm. haven't talked about that. You could talk for hours <laughs> about yeah. the impact of, of cuts to legal aid. Um, probably affected Anthony's sort of area of law more than mine, but it certainly has impacted on some of the cases that I come across, the fact that legal aid has been really stripped down um, and affected the legal profession and people's ability to bring cases or to defend cases quite quite significantly. Um, and that's really an access to justice, justice issue. That's absolutely fundamental that everyone should be entitled if they need um, to have a lawyer to have one. Um, mm. But I think that's a whole different podcast. I, I completely agree with, with Judith there. I think legal aid is important. I think the party, to be honest, has sometimes made the right noises but not been that specific about it. And actually, we need the next general elections to make a big specific offer. We will increase the legal aid budget by X billion. Just, just be really upfront and hit people unambiguously about it. But there, there's also other things, for instance, I mean, so in terms of, of criminal law, the cost rules have changed now. So now the state can falsely accuse you of a crime, put you on trial, you get acquitted, but you've still got to pay your own costs. It's just outrageous. Or equally, uh, I mean, probably less serious thing, but I think something to be thinking about is um, there's VAT on legal fees, on all legal fees, but including on criminal defence fees. So uh, I can't talk about the case. Right now I've got a client who's a man of good character he's never been in any trouble he's charged with something which reputationally will destroy his life uh, he can't get legal aid because legal aid's been been cut and he has to pay me privately but he's also got to pay the government 20 percent on top so we have a situation where the state again can accuse you of something he would say he's not guilty of and not only has he got to pay his defence and he may not get his defence costs back, but he's got to pay the government 20% of that on top for the privilege. I think that's something that we could look at. One thing I would say something slightly different, though, is I get really frustrated where liberals get pigeonholed as being soft on crime. and We let our mm -hmm. opponents get away with that. And, and that's the last thing I am. I'm sure that's true of Judith, too. If people do bad things to others, they should be punished. Uh, we should definitely help rehabilitate people, but we should put prevent the danger and the harm they do to other people. And we should be really, really clear about that. Yeah, I think, I think that is really important. And that's true. Um, there's that saying that someone's entitled to, to a fair hearing and to a lawyer is not the same as being soft on crime. But that's kind of how it's been portrayed. Um, and I yeah. think that that's, that's absolutely right. And I think that, and, and a classic example is you talk about legal aid and the way you guys have framed it is perfect. You know, everyone should have a right mm -hmm. to have a uh, to be represented and to have be able to defend themselves regardless of what's in their bank balance. But you know that on the other side of that, some idiot will say, you just want to give money to criminals. You know, it will never be me because I don't do anything wrong. That's that's the kind of nonsense you've got to cut through, isn't it? But we're going. How many times have we had this as Liberal Dems, where you know life isn't black and white, and most people who think issues are black and white probably don't understand the nuance of it. No, and I think that is the problem that it's sort of a less attractive topic to argue about because most people, I think, assume that it's not something that's going to affect them. Um, yeah. Whereas the NHS, we know that sooner or later we're all going to need doctors, and our family members are going to need doctors. You would all hope that we're not going to end up having to go through the legal system, but often it happens to people through no fault of their own. And I think everyone should be have that assurance to know that if you do end up, whether it's a criminal or a civil case, that you have got access to a lawyer who can help you and advise you. Um, and I think the problem is at the moment that guarantee isn't there. 
Yeah, I, I, and you're absolutely right. And I'm sorry, you've you've already committed to now. We are now going to have another episode at some point on legal aid. That is how uh, the listeners heard it. You've agreed to it now. But um, I just want to uh, thank you both so much for coming. I, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all sorts, all day on all sorts of topics. It's really interesting, and I really appreciate your time because you. I know how busy you guys are. Uh, and if you do like uh, what Judith and I were saying, do follow them on uh, on their. Uh, on their social media platforms. They're really interesting, really good to follow. Uh, this is the first of the whole series of podcasts we're doing on unpopular professions. So we started with lawyers. Uh, we're going to go on to estate agents and car salesmen. Uh, so this was just the first of many. Uh, no, 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 but you guys have been absolutely top. So thank you so much for coming on. As always, guys, if you've liked this, please subscribe to the podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast or follow us on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. You can follow everything to do with the Lib Dem Pod on social media at Lib Dem Pod. You can email us with suggestions. Do comment on what you've heard today. Where should the Lib Dems be really fighting for in terms of uh, in the, on the legal profession? Um, but thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Anthony and, and Judy. It's been absolutely a pleasure to have you both on. And we'll have another episode very soon. Thanks a lot, John. It's a pleasure. Thank you.